Section 17 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Postal Card No one denies that the postal card is a great thing, and yet it makes most people mad to get one. This is because we naturally feel sensitive about having our correspondence open to the eye of the postmaster and postal clerk. Yet they do not read them. Postal employees hate a postal card as cordially as anyone else. If they were banished and had nothing to read but a package of postal cards or a foreign book of statistics, they would read the statistics. This wild hunger for postal cards on the part of postmasters is all a myth. When the writer don't care who sees his message, that knocks the curiosity out of those who handle those messages. A man who would read a postal card without being compelled to by some stringent statute must be a little deranged. When you receive one, you say, Here's a message of so little importance that the writer didn't care who saw it. I don't care much for it myself. Then you look it over and lay it away and forget it. Do you think that the postmaster is going to wear out his young life in devouring literature that the sendee don't feel proud of when he receives it? Nay, nay. During our official experience, we have been placed where we could have read postal cards time and again, and no one but the all-seeing eye would have detected it. But we have controlled ourselves and closed our eyes to the written message, refusing to take advantage of the confidence reposed in us by our government and those who thus trusted us with their secrets. All over our great land, every moment of the day or night, these little cards are being silently scattered, breathing loving words inscribed with a hard lead pencil, and shedding information upon sundered hearts, and they are as safe as though they had never been breathed. They are safer in most instances, because they cannot be read by anybody in the whole world. That is why it irritates us to have someone open up a conversation by saying, you remember what that fellow wrote me from Cheyenne on that postal card of the 25th and how he rounded me up for not sending him those goods? Now, we can't keep all those things in our head. It requires too much of a strain to do it on the salary we receive. A man with a very large salary and a tenacious memory might keep run of the postal correspondence in a small office, but we cannot do it. We are not accustomed to it, and it rattles and excites us. A Card I have just received a letter from my friend Bill Nye of the Laramie City Boomerang, wherein he informs me that he is engaged to the beautiful and accomplished Lydia E. Pinkham of Vegetable Compound fame, and that the wedding will take place on next Christmas. To be sure, I am expected at the wedding, and I'll be on hand, if I can secure a clean shirt by that time, and the roads ain't too bad. But I'm somewhat at a loss what to get as a suitable present, as Bill informs me in a postscript to his letter, that gifts of Bibles, albums, nickel-plated pickle dishes, chromos with frames and the like, will not be in order as it is utterly impossible to pawn articles of this kind in Laramie City. THE BOHEMIAN We are sorry that the above letter which we dashed off in a careless moment has been placed before the public, as later developments have entirely changed the aspect of the matter. 
the engagement between oneself and Lydia having been rudely broken by the young lady herself. She has returned the solitaire-filled ring, and henceforth we can be nothing more to each other than friends. The promise which bade fair to yield so much joy in the future has been ruthlessly yanked asunder, and two young hearts must bleed through the coming years. Far be it from us to say aught that would reflect upon the record of Miss Pinkham. It would only imperil her chances in the future, and deny her the sweet satisfaction of gathering in another guileless sucker like us. The truth, however, cannot be evaded, that Lydia is no longer young. She is now in the searing yellow leaf. The gurgle of girlhood and the romping careless grace of her childhood are matters of ancient history alone. We might go on and tell how one thing brought on another, till the quarrel occurred, and hot words and an assault and battery led to this estrangement, but we will not do it. It would be wrong for a great strong man to take advantage of his strength and the public press to speak disparagingly of a young thing like Lyd. No matter how unreasonably she may have treated us, we are dumb and silent on this point. Journalists who have been invited and have purchased costly wedding presents may ship the presents by express, prepaid, and we will accept them and struggle along with our first great heart trouble, while Lydia goes on her mad career. Why We Are Not Gay It was the policy of this paper from its inception, whatever that is, to frown upon and discourage fraud wherever the latter has shown its hideous front. In doing so, we have simply done our duty, and our reward has been great, partially in the shape of money, and partially in the shape of conscious rectitude and new subscribers. We shall continue this course until we are able to take a trip to Europe, or until some large man comes into the office with a masked battery and blows us out through the window into the mellow haze of an eternal summertime. We have been waiting until the present time for about 100,000 shade trees in this town to grow, and as they seem to be a little reluctant about doing so, and the season being now far advanced, we feel safe in saying that they are dead. They were purchased a year ago of a nursery that purported to be okay, and up to that time no one had ever breathed a word against it. Now, however, unless those trees are replaced— we shall be compelled to publish the name of that nursery in large, glaring type to the world. The trees looked a little under the weather when they arrived, but we thought we could bring them out by nursing them. They stood up in the spring breeze like a seed-wart, however, and refused to leave. They are still obstinate. The agent concluded to leave, but the trees did not. We feel hurt about it, because people come here from a distance and laugh at our hoe-handle forest. They speak jeeringly of our wilderness of deceased elms, and sneer at our defunct magnolias. We hate to cast a reflection on the house, but we also dislike to be played for Chinamen when we are no such thing. We prefer to sit in the shade of the luxuriant telegraph pole, and stroll at set of sun amid the umbrageous shadows of the barbed wire fence, through which the sunlight glints and glitters to and fro. Nothing saddens us like death in any form, 
and one hundred thousand dead trees scattered through the city, sticking their limbs up into the atmosphere like a variety actress, bears down upon us with the leaden weight of an ever-present gloom. Scientific The boomerang reporter, sent out to find the North Pole eighteen months ago, has just been heard from. An exploring party recently found portions of his remains in latitude 411.44, longitude southwest by sow from the pole, and near the remains the following fragment of a diary. July 1, 1881. Have just been out searching for a sunstroke and signs of a thaw. Saw nothing but ice flow and snow so far as the eye could reach. Think we will have snow this evening unless the wind changes. July 2nd. Spent the forenoon exploring to the northwest for right-of-way for a new equatorial and north pole railroad that I think would be of immense value to commerce. The grade is easy, and the expense would be slight. Ate my last dog today, had intended him for the fourth, but got too hungry and ate him raw with vinegar. I wish I was at home eating boomerang paste. July 3rd. We had quite a frost last night, and it looks this morning as though the corn and small fruits must have suffered. It is now two weeks since the last of the crew died and left me alone. Ate the leather ends of my suspenders today for dinner. I did not need the suspenders anyway, for by tightening up my pants I find they will stay on all right, and I don't look for any ladies to call, so that even if my pants came off by some oversight or other, nobody would be shocked. July 4th. Saved up some tar roofing and a bottle of mucilage for my 4th of July dinner, and gorged myself today. The exercises were very poorly attended, and the celebration rather a failure. It is clouding up in the west, and I'm afraid we're going to have snow. Seems to me we're having an all-fired late spring here this year. July 5th. Didn't drink a drop yesterday, it was the quietest fourth I ever put in. I never felt so little remorse over the way I celebrated as I do today. I didn't do a thing yesterday that I was ashamed of, except to eat the remainder of a box of shoe-blacking for supper. Today I ate my last boot-heel, stewed. Looks as though we might have a hard winter. July 6th. Feel a little apprehension about something to eat. My credit is all right here, but there is no competition, and prices are therefore very high. Ice, however, is still firm. This would be a good ice cream country if there were any demand, but the country is so sparsely settled that a man feels as lonesome here as a greenbacker at a presidential election. Ate a pound of cotton waste soaked in machine oil today. There is nothing left for tomorrow but ice water and an old pocketbook for dinner. Looks as though we might have snow. July 7th. This is a good cool place to spend the summer if provisions were more plenty. I am wearing a sealskin undershirt with three woolen overshirts and two bearskin vests today, and when the dew begins to fall, I have to put on my buffalo ulster to keep off the night air. I wish I was home. It seems pretty lonesome here since the other boys died. I do not know what I will get for dinner tomorrow, unless the neighbors bring in something. A big bear is coming down the hatchway as I write. 
I wish I could eat him. It would be the first square meal for two months. It is, however, a little mixed whether I will eat him or he eat me. It will be a cold day for me if he... Here the diary breaks off abruptly, and from the chewed-up appearance of the book, we are led to entertain a horrible fear as to his safety. THE REVELATION RACKET IN UTAH Our esteemed and extremely connubial contemporary, The Desert News, says in a recent editorial, the Latter-day Saints will rejoice to learn that the vacancies which have existed in the quorums of the Twelve Apostles and the first seven presidents of the Seventies are now filled. During the conference recently held, Elder Abram H. Cannon was unanimously chosen to be one of the first seven presidents of Seventies, and he was ordained to that office on Monday, October ninth. Subsequently, the Lord, by revelation through his servant, pressed John Taylor, designated by name, brothers George Teasdale and Herbert J. Grant, to be ordained to the apostleship, and brother Seymour B. Young to fill the remaining vacancy in the presidency of the seventies. These brethren were ordained Monday, October 16th, the two apostles under the hands of the first presidency in twelve, and the other under the hands of the twelve and the presidency of the seventies. Now, that's a convenient system of politics and civil service. When there is a vacancy, the president, John Taylor, goes into his closet and has a revelation which settles it all right. If the man appointed vicariously by the Lord is not in every way satisfactory, he may be discharged by the same process. Instead, therefore, of being required to rally a large force of his friends to aid him in getting an appointment, the aspirant arranges solely with the party who runs the revelation business. It will be seen at a glance, therefore, that the man who can get the job of revelating in Zion has it pretty much his own way. We would not care who made the laws of Utah if we could do its revelating at so much per revelate. Think of the power it gives a man in a community of blind believers. Imagine, if you please, the glorious possibilities in store for the man who can successfully reveal the word of the Lord in an easy, extemporaneous manner on five minutes' notice. This prerogative does not confine itself to politics alone. The impromptu revelator of the Jordan has revelations when he wants to evade the payment of a bill. He gets a divine order also if he desires to marry a beautiful maid or seal the new school ma'am to himself. He has leverage which he can bring to bear upon the people of his diocese at all times, even more potent than the press, and it does not possess the drawbacks that a newspaper does. You can run an aggressive paper if you want to in this country, and up to the time of the funeral you have a pretty active and enjoyable time. But after the grave has been filled up with the clods of the valley, and your widow has drawn her insurance, you naturally ask, What is the advantage to be gained by this fearless style of journalism? Still, even the inspired racket has its drawbacks. Last year a little incident occurred in a Mormon family down in southern Utah, which weighed about nine pounds, and when the ex-officio husband, who had been absent two years, returned, he acted kind of wild and surprised somehow. 
and as he went through the daily round of his work, he could be seen counting his fingers back and forth and looking at the almanac and adding up little mounts on the side of the barn with a piece of red chalk. Finally, one of the inspired mob of that part of the vineyard thought it was about time to get a revelation and go down there. So he did so. He sailed up to the de facto husband and quasi-parent and solemnly straightened up some little irregularities as to dates. But the revelation was received with disdain, and the revelator was sent home in an old ore sack and buried in a peach basket. Sometimes there is, even in Utah, a manifestation of such irreverence and open hostility to the church that it makes us shudder. End of section 17